So Eugene had a birthday. Yes, I did. He's unexcited about it because in the most infamous Eugene quote, one of them, birthdays are not an accomplishment. There's a lot of things I can't say about that because I was told that this day of celebration does not belong to me, rightfully so. It belongs to my mother. Shout out to Mama Ken. Yes. However, I guess we use your birthday as a reason to celebrate and gather together and your wife, Nicole, and a bunch of other really good friends that you can shout out, put together a nacho table for you. Genuinely surprised on how well it turned out. It was amazing. If you're unfamiliar with the nacho table, usually they're super basic. It's like, it's it's good for about 10 minutes because what happens is that people will line a table with tortilla chips and they'll just pour queso like liquid cheese on top of it. Yeah. So it's usually a nacho table is just like a plate of nachos, super sized. Exactly. Right? So like how when you get a plate of nachos, which is fine, like plates of nachos should come this way. It's like tortilla chips and then like some meat, salsa, guac, cheese. Right. Regular tables, basic ones are that, but on a table surface. Your friends are more clever than that. Yes. My friends at Flagrant Hot Sauce, a.k.a. Kenny, Yoshi, and Matt. Now this is a sponsored podcast. Yeah. Anyways, what they did was we, we basically took my dining room table, which is a circle. I built a That's like a what? Ring. Uh, what do you think the diameter is? I don't know. Five feet, six yeah. feet? Yeah. I, I built a right. ring around it. So basically it turned into a huge chip bowl. Matt was able to grab a old rice cooker, like an industrial one from Yardbird that they used to use for staff meal. And that became the centerpiece for us to put the cheese in. And yeah. we would just kind of fluctuate between warm and cook so that the cheese would stay melted. And then we would strategically position dips and proteins around. In bowls. And then... You, so everything stays like dry if it's dry, and wet if it's wet. Basically, it's like a buffet table a for... Chips. Do your own nachos. Anyway, we already shared images in the making Discord. So if you want to get in on this nacho table action, join our Patreon. Yeah, it was amazing, actually. Should we get into it? Yeah, let's jump into it. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners. But really, we are working through things, and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for Discord access, exclusive newsletters, and more. Okay, my subject this week comes from a newsletter written by Charlie Wurzel. The subject line is, the internet is flat. And it starts off by quoting Alexis Ohanian, Reddit founder, who used to like to say the phrase, the world isn't flat, but the World Wide Web is. And this is a very utopian idea that is also somewhat true, meaning that the internet democratizes industries and puts people on even footing. 
So anyone can start up a business, a media platform, a YouTube channel, et cetera, and immediately launch it and put it in front of millions of mm-hmm. people. So this is true, if a little idealistic still. But the reality is more complicated. So Wurzel writes about a more negative way in which the internet is flat. And he makes this argument that social media platforms collapse time and space and context where information is shared across audiences and frequently misread by audiences that the original information wasn't written for. And it's not just about audience movement, but it's about, like I said, time and space. Mm -hmm. So this is really interesting to me. Yeah. Can you clarify? This is really interesting to me where like anything that ever happened is essentially still happening right now. So if you take like a trend, okay. So it used to be trendy to, I'm just going to make something up, like wear floral t-shirts, okay? Mm-hmm. Because of the internet and the you know vastness of the world and people on the internet, someone somewhere is constantly rediscovering floral t-shirts. So to them, the trend is always immediate. It's like no longer really possible to lock something as having p- happened and being passed. Can I, sense? can I disagree against that point? Sure. In essence, I agree to an extent, but I think that it's always been the case because you've always had migration from the top end of the influencers down into the mainstream. What do you mean by always been the case? Because it's always, you've, regardless of well, what it's always you, been the case with the internet. It hasn't no, no, been the it's case always, pre-internet. No, it's always, it's, I'm fairly certain it's still been a case back in the day because you've always had people of influence that can define a trend. And as that trend through technology, through whatever migrates downwards, the people, whether it's like access due to money, like, you know, you can actually have, afford to participate. It drives itself downwards. And obviously mainstream at its core is a part of a demographic that is the largest. Yeah. So, Yes, I, I, I agree. There's an element of new discovery. But at the same time, I think that what you're just seeing is maybe there's a sense of acceleration slash there is just a greater chance to resurface things. But I disagree that trends were compartmentalized in these nice, neat sort of time frames. Because even I, when I get both agree up, and disagree because I get what you're saying about movement. Obviously, things did move across audiences as you're saying but i think the key thing here is like the way time worked pre-internet was things took much longer so let's say a trend would move over the course of a year whereas right now a trend will circulate through audiences in a day yeah and i think that's the key difference i'm not saying that there wasn't movement beforehand but it is the time collapse that's really important here that things are just like instantaneous so things like resurrect and die and resurrect and die over and over again if you want to put it that way i just use the trend as an example that i thought was going to be less controversial because really wurzel's piece is about cancel culture he doesn't he only uses like phrase cancel culture like maybe once because it's kind of a difficult phrase to talk about right like means different things to different people and people like immediately kind of get argumentative about what they think their position is regarding cancel culture. So Wurzel quotes another writer, Kashmir Hill, who I'm going to read right now. 
Part of the problem is how time itself has been warped by the internet. Everything moves faster than before. Accountability from an individual's employer or affiliated institutions is expected immediately upon the unearthing of years-old content. Who you were a year ago or five years ago or decades ago is flattened into who you are now. Time has collapsed and everything is in the present because it takes microseconds to pull it up online. There's little appreciation for context or personal evolution. I like that. That's yeah, super powerful. I agree. Yeah, I like that quote a lot. And Wurzel talks about this interesting relationship between time and an individual's personal evolution and this concept of group accountability. And he acknowledges that it's really chaotic to talk about these things because, again, everyone's perception of those three items, time, how much a person grows and group accountability are all different. And yet they're like mixed together in Internet discourse that moves super quickly. As a personal question, do you ever worry about so-called like getting canceled online? All the time. I was a teenager and I've done a lot of dumb shit, but I was just fortunate that there were no smartphones. But I also am not worried about cancel culture in that it's something I said in the past. It's more about having an idea or thought misconstrued. Mm. I don't know if you saw this, but about a week ago, actor Ellie Kemper from The Office, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and Bridesmaids was trending on Twitter for quotation marks being crowned KKK queen in 1999. Which actress is this? Ellie Kemper. And on The Office, which which character is she? She's like the really bubbly secretary that replaces Pam at the front desk. Oh, Who's Kimmy like Schmidt. Dumb. Yeah, Kimmy Schmidt. Literally her? Yeah, yeah, her. Ellie Kemper. Oh, interesting. That, that actor. Well, it isn't true. The, what oh. I just said wasn't true. But she oh. was trending on Twitter for that reason. Okay, like a week ago. And it wasn't true. And this is... This is like the worst. This is just an example. I'm not here to like talk about Ellie Kemper. Basically, what happened is like someone found photos of her at the age of 19 attending this society debutante event where she was crowned queen. And the society is like this 130 year old conservative white society. And so this person was saying how like the organization is racist and tied to the KKK. And there's. A lot of people who read this in a good faith way who said, you know, she was 19. She participated in like something that she probably didn't know the history of. Any organization in the U.S. that is over 130 years old, probably racist because it's old and existed in the U.S. (laughs) Noted. So a lot of journalists were like trying to say that. But then it just kind of like, as happens on the Internet, got lost and people weren't caring about it. They were just like, you know wrapped up in this whole like KKK queen business. Kemper wound up apologizing on Monday for this because like she was trending and then she had to like make a response for this thing. So Wurzel says this in his piece. Consider the following questions and their potential answers. Has Kemper evolved personally and politically since 1999? Likely, yes. Has she interrogated her past and reckoned with her past participation in this event? Unclear. Is it important that she and many others do so? It would seem so. Is it important society hold her accountable, or is it important society forgive her, not dwell on this? 
Or do we need to know more before rendering judgment? Perhaps the answer is all of the above. All of these questions reflect the nuances of a situation. And all of these questions are also irrelevant because the ecosystem in which the broader conversation is conducted flattens them all into nothingness. Yeah, so it's a dismal take, essentially, where Wurzel is saying, like, these are good questions, but it doesn't even matter if they're good questions because nobody cares to answer them. No one wants to listen. And some people often are looking for a fight on the internet regardless, right? It's the positioning of one's purpose in social media. I would also say that different types of accounts and social media platforms create different types of interactions. Yeah, definitely. Like on Instagram, I personally feel like there's maybe a little bit less of a combative nature because it's opt-in, albeit at the large scale, if you're a massive influencer, yes, people will come and fight regardless. But on Twitter, I also think that it does lend itself to more of these, I don't know, negative experiences. Yeah, totally. I think I don't really participate a lot on Twitter or Instagram, or actually on any social media platform. But what I think I see happen is people becoming characters online. Mm-hmm. If you wind up being typecast as like argumentative, that's who you are when yeah. you sign in. And you're just always this like argumentative combative character essentially it's like not the fullness of you as a person in real life I've having a conversation with someone a lot because today i replied to someone's tweet i'm like it was someone mentioned something like oh they should do this like this this and this and i made a suggestion that the technology was already there but i didn't want to come across as oh you didn't know it was more about hey like this is an example of how this could work this is how they did it, right? And I was also, I've been very conscious of it because I don't really tweet that much. But when I do tweet, I'm trying to think about not necessarily the brand I want to pursue or the brand I want to showcase. It's the message. And when, when someone messages me or something and how I even acknowledge them could in itself be seen in different ways. Like we've talked about this maybe like years ago, right? But if you message me and I reply yo versus yo with five O's. Even then there's some sort of nuance there, right? And yeah. I try to actually be extra deliberate in how I message online so that it takes the edge out of any sort of aggression. Yeah. Not to say that it always happens, but you know, it could be me hitting you up out of the blue, yo Sharice, as in like you you messed up or something. Yeah. There's like all these variables and you're just actually trying to make it as clear cut as possible. When you throw in an emoji, it's not one emoji, it's like three emojis. Yeah, I completely agree. We have really put a lot of effort into conveying tonality and attitude in not a lot of characters and not a lot of text space. And it's interesting what you're saying about the kind of brand or identity or message, as you said, online because there's this another quote from a writer Rebecca Jennings in this piece who says I don't know that the demand for influencers to speak out on complex political issues is entirely about the issues themselves it feels more like a test am I as a fan justified in having this parasocial relationship with you 
Who are you anyway? Should I be uncomfortable with how much attention we're all giving you? That actually reminded me of a topic I, I was thinking about was about influencers and their thoughts on Palestine, right? I don't know if this tied back. Oh, no, no but it's not a great specifically example. Palestine, but it influencers' thoughts on news of the moment. And I also wonder if influencers that are known for a certain thing that give their opinion on another actually detract from the issue at hand because the pre-existing connotation around what they do muddies the water. Yeah. And I personally have this take where I don't always trust an actor to tell me where the best food is. Yeah. Right. I'd much rather have a chef talk about chef things. Also just in general, I don't, this really clicked for me what Jennings says, because it does make more sense that fans, audiences are just testing the people that they follow as opposed to actually looking to that person for an opinion on Palestine or like an opinion on the best restaurants. It's more like each each one of those questions is a challenge to like whether they are like on like brand a, or whether they're like worth yes, being followed. It's like a ethical gauntlet of sorts where totally are you or, or a cultural gauntlet. Yeah, you know, cultural if, gauntlet, if yeah. we go like it doesn't have to be always political. It can be that, you know, like what's the best bagel in New York? Like, oh, my God, like you don't think that's the best bagel place like that type of thing. It's so true. Essentially, what you're doing is you're not really giving anyone the benefit of the doubt because you're putting them to a test without them having the chance or wanting to hear them explain themselves. Yeah. So yeah. I guess the question I have, which I don't really know is answerable, is where do social media platforms go from here? Or if social media platforms themselves don't change, like if the people who make them don't significantly change the way they structure the platforms, is it possible to be some kind of big movement in the way we participate online as humans? When you mentioned the idea and concept around time just kind of falling to the wayside, it actually made me think of this social media platform called Be Real. Have you heard of it? No, I, I haven't. I downloaded it yesterday and I was never going to be a regular user. I was just curious about it. But basically what happens is like at random moments over the course of the day, I might actually get this wrong because I haven't really gone through it because I download it at like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. At random moments of the day, you will get a notification from the app and you have to share what you're doing in mm. that two minute window. So in some ways it immediately identifies a time around it interesting and it also makes it more positive because it's perhaps less around likes dude this is so crazy because i just got a notification from be real as you picked up your phone yeah two minutes left to capture a be real and see what your friends are up to so let's say i do it right now sure do it on air i actually might not even have anyone to share it with because i have no friends on this (laughs) okay whatever do it anyway let's see what happens anyways i don't know how it works interesting that's kind of like a FaceTime. Yeah, like it takes the front and back camera. But then on top of that, there's another one called doing my homework late at night called paparazzi. You didn't know I was going to pick this. Or just doing no, a general, just, just trend, general homework. trend. Yeah. Is this? A, are you about to also take a picture of me? There's going to be all these like random photos of me floating around the internet. There's some sort of uh, interest around these because there's a repositioning around positivity. Which I think in this next generation of social media platforms, I think they're trying to take some of the edge out of it. I was going to say, I don't even think of it as a repositioning around positivity so much as alternative spaces. 
yes, th- I would say that there is like this marketing slant to a lot of these platforms that is sort of that positive well-being type of language. But I see it as trying to take the giants down, right? Like dispersing mm-hmm. where people gather. I actually do also have two kind of examples of where things might go. I joined Sherry Who's Water and Music Discord mm-hmm. recently, which has about maybe 1,500 people, I think, in it. And that's enough people that there's like messages every day. I've been quite impressed with the depth of thought and the length of like people's not that length means quality but you know you know what i mean yeah. it's not just like yo or like heart emoji type stuff so that's pretty cool to me that seems pretty well sized it's not the same 1500 is a lot it's not the same as a public facing platform right yeah. like paparazzi be real etc cuz it's paid right so that's one way that things go where people pay to be in circles that they choose the other example I have is I signed up for an online club. That's actually what it's called. It's part of Hyperlink Academy. Mm-hmm. And again, this is paid. I was about to say, I don't think the price is exorbitant, but that's not fair. That's kind of my privilege. But I paid to be part of this comic making club. That's just for fun. And mm-hmm. you hang out with other comic makers. And there's also like this uh, syllabus that you're loosely encouraged oh, cool. to follow. So I thought that was pretty cool. Again, these are not really social media platforms, like in the way that not Twitter in a traditional sense. Yeah, but they're social things. But then again, you're sharing what you create. Yeah, to an extent. both so of those are a bit more. I think so. It still fits within this bucket of social plus media. I mean, we're due for some sort of revision to the whole thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm excited. I, I know that this article is. If you read it, if people read it, it's quite negative. It might make you feel down. But where we wound up with this conversation is like, I'm glad the tide is turning. That there's enough of like a volume of people who feel things have to change in some way or the other. Yeah. Should we move on? Yep. Let's do it. All right. My topic this week is, very simply put, the cooperation economy. And this comes courtesy of Packy McCormick's Not Boring. So Packy McCormick and Not Boring, if you're uh, unfamiliar, is a newsletter that talks about various interesting concepts and ideas. Most recently, a lot have been focused on sort of Web 3.0, what is the future of work, and how our digital landscape is changing culture and society. So the essay itself talks about how we're now at a point in time where individuals are these self-sustaining atomic units that work and play uh, together, and they're blurring as people spend more and more time pursuing things they genuinely love. So there's this one early statement within the piece that talks about how individuals now are gaining more and more control and how there's a restructuring and shift on how people work and play together. And this quote, together, those pieces are about the fact that individuals are becoming self-sustaining atomic units and that work and play are blurring as people spend more time pursuing the things they genuinely love. But we're not playing alone. The people who play this game best are the ones who play together. And one thing that, as I mentioned, was interesting is that in a most, in a most traditional sense, there was 
a bundle that existed by virtue of us working at a company. So for example, we would work at a big company that up until recently was disrupted, disrupted in the sense that people started going pure freelance. They started deciding a lot of their own things that in the past were much harder to decide because you had the safety net and opportunity that came with working in a company. But by virtue of that happening now, we're now seeing what we're calling like these new units being formed. One thing that Not Boring says is that I think the cooperation economy, the lightweight convergence of people with differentiated and complementary skill sets around a goal is here to stay and it isn't just for influencers. Participation in the cooperation economy requires only something with which individuals come preloaded. Differentiation. Understand what you're uniquely good at, how you want to play the game, and then join forces with people with shared goals and complementary skills. The cooperation economy is an optimistic vision for the future. It's community at great online game scale with real financial upside. This might be a little bit far into this subject to ask, but is it being called the cooperation economy in contrast to the creator economy? No, in actuality, the cooperation is almost a level up from the creator economy. Right. So the creator so economy it's like allows the next you phase correct. of the creator economy. But I say contrast because cooperation means more than one creator. So as opposed to like your individual creator economy, where I as an individual artist open a solo Patreon, the cooperation economy means that like several creators who've already got that going on come together and do something else. Correct. To all of their mutual benefit. Okay. I was a little long winded. Cool. No, I just wanted to kind of add that context of the creator economy, I guess, for folks. I mean, if anyone listens to this podcast, we've talked about it plenty, but for folks who are wondering where like this term is kind of coming from, yeah. I think that's what it builds on. Yeah, I think that creator economy and passion economy are probably better lumped together. Yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. might not be a content creator, right? Those but are kind of the same. Yeah. yeah, to me, those are interchangeable. Well, I just think that you could potentially be a participant and not a creator in the sense that, oh, I, I create content, I do so and so. Right, but I mean, you can be a participant in the creator economy as well. I just think they are different words that describe like the same type of financial ecosystem. Yeah. Whereas cooperation economy is just is like genuinely, I think, describing the next level of financial ecosystem. Yeah. To put it that way. And right before you jumped in, I was going to say that the, the cooperation economy is an optimistic vision for the future. It's community at great online game scale with real financial upside. So the great online game is sort of this changing of how we interact as individuals within this whole world right and i think it's changed a lot given how much opportunity how much uh, lack of restriction there are to go and kind of seek out your own opportunities and not boring breaks this down into five key parts the big smile which picture this a smiling graph that shows that creators and aggregators aka you as the individual or google are way more powerful than the middle, which is like the publisher, right? So the creators obviously fuel the machine. The publishers are kind of removed from from having the power because they're no longer the gatekeepers. And then obviously the aggregators are consolidating all of that. In general, like individuals don't need companies like they used to. We've talked about this at length of how We talked about that last week, right? Yeah, journalists have left a publisher to work on their own, to do their own Newsletter. Well, we talked about it last week in the concept of athletes as well, yeah. where athletes can go straight to their audience and bypass traditional press. Yeah. 
And there's also this concept around LeBron and super teams. So what they do is they highlight a discussion around how teams no longer have any power or reduced power. And it's gone to the superstar players, which is far different from the past when the team, like the professional franchise, had all the power and they could dictate what decisions were made around players, player movement, etc. And now if you're really good, you basically write your own terms. You dictate who do you bring in to play with you, what it's going to look like, etc. And there's this quote, In the NBA, while the players may hold more power than ever before, the atomic unit is still the team. If you're not on one of the 12 players on those 30 teams, you can't compete in the NBA. And the player's upside is capped, albeit at very high numbers. In the internet economy, though, the atomic unit is the person and work is becoming more liquid as people realize they're able to flow more freely. And this next point is liquid work. For some people, it's way easier for them to work in multiple jobs than ever before because there's a lot of opportunity. Like We don't necessarily commute. There's communication tools. I can plug in and work across several different teams versus in the past, we kind of all had to consolidate in an office. And here's another quote. What liquid work provides above all else is optionality. That may mean working for a couple of companies simultaneously, but it may also mean working for yourself, teaming up with others for time-bound projects, investing as a group, and contributing to a DAO in a certain area of interest. It's fluid. Question to you. How many different jobs or things that pay you would you say you're a part of right now? I would say that at this moment in time, it would be three, which seems actually kind of like a low number to me. Weirdly. Oh, wait, no, hang on. I've just remembered another one. Four. Four. Because there's inner trend where I do creative strategy, make in as a managing editor. There's myself. I'm going to count myself. Freelancer. Like yeah. I'm still a freelancer. I might not at this particular moment have a client, but the option is always open slash those conversations happen. And I continue to do paid research work with my professor slash friend from Goldsmiths. Nice. Those four. This, that seems about right, numbers wise. Yeah. Like if I look at all things that you, my at friend. some point will could generate some sort of like income. Eugene is standing here <laughs> counting on his fingers. I don't know. Six, seven, maybe. Safely. But it's not, it's not like a, it's not a game so much as like when I was reading this, I was like, does it sound like we're competing? <laughs> it doesn't sound like you're competing, but I was actually, oh, like a lot of things that came quite naturally to us. Like I wouldn't look at you and be like, oh, you have a lot of gig series. It just is the nature of being part of this quasi creator economy. Yeah. And then there's some things that I was thinking as you were reading this from not boring where I was like, well, it is that blurry line. Like there's Jess Henderson of offline matters who we publish a series of articles with on Macon. And this is the sneak peek preview is we're probably going to do a giveaway with her in the future. And in a way she's a part of Macon and we're also a part of offline matters. Yeah. But it's not like there's not this hard line differentiation like there is. There's some things that are just hers. There's something that's just ours. But there's also like a lot of room for overlap. Yeah. I'm going to I'm going to continue on. Yeah, go for it. The next one is liquid super teams. So liquid super teams come together as a community of people leverage their skills, talents and network. And one thing that's interesting is there's there's just far less commitment, right? Like it's not a full time job where you're expected to show up 
at 9 a.m. and leave at 5. If anything, it's kind of like, how does your availability fit into it? And here's another quote. Liquid super teams are powerful because they increase talent density by lowering the commitment required of each participant. People who would never work for another person, again, happily join liquid super teams from time to time. I mean, I think about this as happening quite a lot with Macon and Adam Studios, where you bring in the best person for For the the job, whether that's a video for a client or it's a long form editorial piece that's going to be published on Macon. I think there's a lot of freedom in finding whoever's appropriate at the moment. I enjoy that. And to that point, though, as much as this sounds like a new concept, what you just mentioned is actually something that's been around for a long time. I mean, we've been doing it a long time. No, too. not even like predates us. Oh, you and mean it's, like in, in it's human like the history? Whole movie studio concept. Maybe oh, not, okay. I thought you were going to go caveman times. No, there no, when no. You but were like, like the whole movie industry studio concept is exactly oh, that. Oh, sure, yeah. Because you come together, you bring the best people for that one production. Hey, you love. I love mentioning unions, and one reason that is able to exist in movie studios is because of unions. So yeah. I think that's like an interesting concept where. As much as this sounds like this revelational thing, it has existed. And it's kind of how we've adopted as well. It's like you have a core team that serves as a foundation. And in this case, like they're the core team of the super liquid teams. And then you bring people in as needed. It does mean, however, that the people who you recruit to be part of your super liquid team are people who tend to be readily available. It all comes together, right? Like the member of the super liquid team isn't what is the opposite of liquid like is not going to have this rigid yeah rigid work structure full time or a single employer yeah. most likely because otherwise you would know like oh that's not good chances of me being able to have him on my team for this time yeah but i think that the interesting part of it is because the commitment changes you can introduce people into the mix and that introduction i think is in some ways debatable as to how impactful they can become because I actually want to speak to some of the the pitfalls of this. Actually, before I do that, why don't we just talk about like we'll, we'll encapsulate this whole thing and then we'll talk. Pitfalls. Pitfalls. Okay. Yeah. There is this last sentence, this last passage. The passion economy makes it possible for anyone to start their own business online. Kind of what you alluded to at the beginning. Literally what I opened with. Power to the person means that those businesses with just one full-time employee can get really big. The great online game means that everyone can play a metagame that blurs work and life. The cooperation economy lets us play the great online game together. Each bring our own superpowers and allows us to pursue opportunities together that none of us could tackle alone. So in this game, you're required to bring value, essentially, or else you risk losing out on future opportunities and you can't really float by. like. Unless you take control is that, of the situation. Is that your pitfall? Is that what you're saying is the pitfall or is this a continuation well, of your I think this is one of my bigger questions is around the value of being part of a larger rigid organization until you graduate into the ability to be part of the passion economy. Well, you also raised the question in my mind as to even if you, as you put it, graduate into the passion economy and then the cooperation economy you might still need a safety net at some point. Mm -hmm. Something can happen to your life situation or well-being and you'll find yourself possibly without that support Yeah, because of the nature of cooperation, economy, and what we've described. Yeah. I mean, I don't discount that 
one's valuation within these opportunities is not clearly defined by time, right? That's one thing we're actually trying to remove is that if you have value to add, your value will be rewarded. So if for whatever reason, you're the fastest person to solve any complex accounting problem, you will have a place on the team. But when I was thinking about it, I was like, in some ways, rigidity lends itself to brand and brand itself has value across multiple different opportunities. Like who you worked for in the past, if they're a good brand, that provides you the opportunity to work elsewhere, opens a lot of doors. Now, what's to be determined is given there's so much flexibility, how strong will these fluid brands become? Right. And I think that this was an argument I had on a panel discussion a few days ago was that brands that we see now and that have outlasted all their peers are ones uh, because they did certain things right and they established a certain persona and they developed a strong brand. But by virtue of establishing a strong brand, that's why they're here and that's why we talk about them. And there's obviously a lot of people that go out and do the act of what an LV does of making a handbag, but because there's some structure missing, they're unable to turn that highly produced, beautiful handbag into a brand that has credibility and legs to outlast that one person who started it. Yeah. So that's what I find most interesting is that, yes, you can create this sense of fluidity, but at some point, brand, and I say brand not in a pejorative way, but brand in the fact no, that like you you're mean. part of like something that has established itself as a trustworthy organization, without that, you're going to actually spend a lot of time and effort. So great example is like some of the bigger people that have left publishing companies, we know of them because the New York Times co- co-signed them and they did great work there and people were able to see it. So I think that's like up for debate. It doesn't mean that you need to be part of a rigid organization to succeed. But there's definite value in it because rigid organization lends itself to brand. Yeah, no, I agree. And the nature of things being less rigid is that they're not as long lasting, right? So it might be amazing one time outcome over three months, let's say. And it could be a really, you know, well acclaimed project, whatever it is. But as you're saying, it won't have that ongoing brand type of cachet because ultimately you need people to be sufficiently heavily invested for them to be around for the long term which is also debatable like do things need to last hundreds of years i don't think that things need to last hundreds and hundreds of years however i do not think we are there yet as a society i Mm -hmm. think that in general people still very naturally attribute value to things that last a very long time. Even though I, I, I think you're right. Like we could move towards things just being whatever time it takes. People come together for three months or two years or five and that's it. Yeah. Cause like for us, if people weren't sufficiently invested for the long term, you wouldn't have someone driving it. And I think that despite the fact that there's been so much push around DAOs, like decentralized autonomous organizations you still need a sufficiently strong idea and or leader to make sure the idea is communicated properly so people 
understand why they're getting on board. Earlier, you mentioned that there was a community join, Sherry Hughes Water and Music. Yep, that's correct. Community. And I think that community itself is defined by its founder and her vision. It's not that it doesn't leave, but, you know, Apple's a great example. You look at Apple post Steve Jobs and pre Steve Jobs or during Steve Jobs' era, right? It's not that it's lost, but I think that because there are the the brand parameters to not not to say that anyone in a fluid organization cannot develop this, but there has to be an intentionality around it, which comes with some sort of semi permanence permanence. Yeah, but I, I to be honest, I think this is still very valid because like I'm working on certain projects that are pretty much this to a T. It is literally how you and I make money. That this is what our livelihood is built upon is the existence of both the creator economy and then this like next level of cooperation economy. So we can't deny that it is to our benefit, at least personally. Yeah. It's more about understanding what sort of pitfalls arise when everyone's sort of committed to something. I mean, to be honest, to be very honest, there's probably always someone that leads a little bit further than the rest. Yeah. Always. I mean, there's always someone who does the initial recruitment, right? Yeah. I, I mean, okay, no. I don't want to say always. Sometimes people do very much organically just fall together. But often someone is recruiting for a specific project or specific work that they would like to do. Yeah. I did have a question, though. Go for it. In light of everything that's happening right now, if we skip the moments of working in an e-liquid environment, meaning we work at a company what does that yield for us going forward? Because I think there are certain sort of best practices and learnings that are derived from working in a rigid, illiquid environment. Because even, even I was talking to Alex about this and he's like, yeah, I still remember those sort of long days working at Wish in Atlanta where you just be grinding it out and like, you know, together in a team, in a room together. And I think there's perhaps a different energy. There's a lot of different things that come with people working hard together in a physical environment versus technically working hard but not amongst one another i'm trying to decide whether i think this is true as i formulate the thought but i think one thing that working in a rigid work situation teaches you is how to interact with and do work with people you don't necessarily like yeah actually that's really really important because in this instance what you're expecting is that everyone gets along with one another and everyone's in agreement Yeah. The cooperation economy sounds very rosy because you get to pick the people that you want to work with. And you and I are very fortunate because we have had lots of opportunities to work with people that we genuinely enjoy the company of. But I think to just go directly into that, I'm not sure I would be as good at human relationships when it comes to work, because I think there's something that you learn from working with people that you just have to deal with. And you wouldn't necessarily hang out. Yeah. You don't hang out outside of work. You do the work together. And that's important. I think you learn something valuable there. Yeah. But the reason I was thinking about whether that's true or not, because I was like, maybe you can learn that in other environments that aren't work related. I mean, in some ways, rigid, illiquid environments technically have the same goal. And that is to basically, you know, either achieve profitability, but... Whoever is like running the company is theoretically trying to find the best person for the job at hand. 
It's just that if you attain a certain level of success and call it stardom, because you need to be sufficiently aware, people need to recognize you because that's probably how they're going to seek you out. Like I'm sure the not boring guy gets tons of opportunity because of his newsletter as a distribution mechanism. People see his ideas, et cetera, et cetera. They don't know if he's a good person or not, Sure, but they know he does great work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think those are really interesting ways of, of looking at it. I mean, at, at the end of the day, I've always tell people, and I'm sure I've repeated this countless times before, but it's in this new era that we're part of, your greatest asset is how well you can communicate uh, with other people, give feedback and arrive at consensus. Yeah. If you can do that really well and you can also navigate cultural nuance, then you'll always have some sort of value wherever you go. All right, let's wrap things up. Let's do it. That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.